Cambridge Muslim College, training the next generation of Muslim thinkers. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillah. Wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah. Wa alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. Welcome back for the uh, latest in our possibly indefinitely to be extended series of reflections on paradigms of leadership. People seem to like the, uh, the biodata approach to ideas. So with each of these uh, often quite dramatic, always moving human stories of people coming from different kind of times and places and spiritual and fiqhi coordinates in the ummah, uh, we try to hang on that peg a particular idea or concept that uh, inshallah will not be entirely devoid of relevance and interest to ourselves. Uh, I want to cover a variety of personages today, but I'll be focusing for most of my presentation on just one. <clears throat> but I'm going to circle in on that uh, revered uh, destination uh, by recalling our coordinates in time and place, Rabbi Al-Awwal, uh, day of the Mawlid, probably today. But Rabbi Al-Awwal has other resonances as well, 1441, uh, that's where we are, 11th Rabbi Al-Awwal, 1441. <coughs> and uh, we can start with uh, the upcoming Urs, the 20th, of uh, Al-Marhum Sheikh Abdullah Sirdan Al-Jamal. I'd like to begin my circling in towards the main personage today by uh, referring briefly to him, Bidikrihim Tanzilur Rahma. We've always remembered this principle just by remembering them, uh, mercy descends. So, who was he? Uh, died yeah, 20 years ago, 20 Islamic years ago. Uh, this is John Ross from Scotland, a war hero decorated, uh, vigorous, uh, unusual person uh, who lived a kind of exemplary uh, 20th century Naqshbandi reality. That's in 2000, so he's entirely 20th century. Doesn't live into our turbulent times. Uh, and uh, starts off in a very conventional way. And you might think this is similar to the story of another of the great uh, renowned in their private worlds, English tariqa leaders, uh, John Leonard, John Gilbert Leonard, Shahidullah Faridi. Uh, but their trajectories were different. Faridi Achishti, who didn't really leave the subcontinent after his conversion, uh, became a near-native speaker of Urdu, wrote, recorded in Urdu, and completely inculturated himself into that world in Karachi, despite the attempts of his parents, who were millionaires, to win him back. They didn't really like this kind of impoverished, dhoti-wearing, uh, dervish existence that their son and heir had involved himself in. Uh, but a contemporary of his was uh, John Ross, Sheikh Abdullah uh, Sirdan al-Jamal, who represents a Naqshbandi alternative. And even though he was embedded in certain parts of the Islamic world, and particularly in Turkey, where his own teachers uh, were located, uh, his activity, his ministry, if you like, his da'wah was essentially amongst the likes of ourselves, amongst uh, Westerners. So I'll whiz through a few pictures um, just to give us a kind of sense of 
there he is visiting the Hirke Sharif Mosque, which when he was in Turkey, um, in really the night, late 70s, early 80s, this was um, the place where he would give his wows and his classes in Turkish, of course. He was very much part of that uh, late Ottoman uh, Naqshbandi world, uh, and his disciples were almost exclusively uh, English or Australian converts or um, uh, Turks of generally middle-class uh, heritage. There he is again somewhere with some of his murids. Quite a, an event when he came to the Khirke Sharif Jami, uh, which is still called the Khirke Sharif Jami. It's in Fatih in Istanbul because that's where they used to keep the Borda, the Prophet's cloak, before a couple of centuries ago it was translated, I suppose, to uh, Topkapa Palace to join the other prophetic relics there, but the mosque is still venerated, as it were, the fragrance still lingers, and this was uh, the place where he chose to teach. And then he moves to Australia, and uh, that's when I kind of completely lost contact with him. I used to go to his classes in London in the early 80s, uh, which were an interesting affair. Um, he was not one for spectacle, uh, and he would have these weekly classes, I think Tuesday evenings, in the uh, uh, former uh, Dominican Priory in Haverstock Hill in North London. So the kind of Hampstead set would come along. Uh, Pre-New Age, but that was part of his uh, constituency, I suppose. And he would just sit there behind a desk with all of these books in front of him. You could hardly see him. And he had Parkinson, so he was kind of like that. He had a lot of uh, health issues. And he would just read from these traditional Naqshbandi and also Mevlevi texts, um, because he was Mevlevi as well, and is said to have been the first to bring the principle of the Devaran, the turning of the Mevlevi dervishes to uh, the Anglo-Saxon world. Uh, and he would just read from these texts, um, uh, the Naqshbandi texts, uh, the Indian and the Turkish texts, Maktubat of Imam Rabbani and so forth, and offer occasional commentaries a very kind of austere and bookish way to attract. And there were usually several hundred people there, and you had to pay three quid or something to get in uh, to attract this demography. But he did create his group, the Muridun al-Haq, including his murids and people who were attracted to his way. And then he went off to Australia, uh, where he started to develop his talents. And here again, we have a characteristic Naqshbandi principle. They love their maxims. Dil ba yar, dast bar kyar. The heart is with the friend, the Almighty, and the hand is at work. This is not a tariqa of kind of taking early retirement uh, to spend more time with your tasbih, your prayer beads. This is a tariqa that emphasizes lawful sustenance, no begging bowl. Uh, and his uh, profession, well, his professions really, was he was a, a great joiner, uh, worked with, with, with furniture, um, but also built houses. This is one of the houses that he built in Tasmania. He went, you know, it was pretty inconvenient if you were used to going to Haverstock Hill and he was in Tasmania now, and this is before the internet, so gone, a kind of occultation. Uh, but he built a number of very fine houses in Tasmania, uh, and he also uh, established a school of fine furniture, which is still there in Launceston, Tasmania, because um, he was really good with his hands in the kind of William Morris way. So that's one of the pieces 
that he made. Interesting, he didn't usually do kind of oriental things. He worked very much in the Western uh, idiom. And uh, they were sort of snapped up all over the world. Here he is at the Savoy Hotel in London, which still has some of his uh, furniture in, in the lobby and in some of the, the state rooms. Um, this is him later in life. Uh, so a craftsman, uh, but also, ha, there he is in the middle. <coughs> in Tasmania, enjoying the improved climatic conditions. Um, he also created uh, a famous stud for the uh, Waverley Murray Grey breed of Australian cows and cattle, um, perhaps because of his sort of ancestry. Many of his ancestors were farming folk. He found this Australian breed of cattle and became you know, one of the world's leading breeders of these um, Murray Grey beasts which constantly won prizes and I don't know if the stud is still there. Uh, he used to breed horses as well. So this is how he kind of supported himself and his morides when in uh, his place of exile. Um, there he is again teaching. This is in the garden of Khirqai Sharif Mosque in, uh, in Istanbul. So he dies in 2000. Uh, having really exemplified the Naqshbandi principles that, whose origins I'm going to be talking about when I come to my main character later today, uh, which is uh, the Naqshbandi principle of silent dhikr. Some of the Naqshbandis in the West think uh, two hours of silent dhikr is a bit hard for these Westerners who like entertainment. Um, but this was his tradition. Sohbet, there you are, keeping people company informal gatherings, the conversation goes here and there, but it's subtly directed by the sheikh, who is still the conductor, uh, into directions that yield some permanent benefit for everybody who is present. Uh, and this is generally a principle in tasawwuf and in Islamic ethics generally. We're not much into running away to hermitages, but in the Naqshbandi tradition, it's one of the key uh, teaching styles. Um, and then the final one, uh, tawajjuh. Again, uh, it is normal in Islamic practice to consider uh, one's relationship to those who are absent, so uh, dreams of people who might have passed away, mysterious, enigmatic, but uh, uh, they can be genuine establishments of filaments of connection to whatever condition that consciousness might be in after the veil of death has separated us. Um, the true dream of the Holy Prophet, whoever sees me in a dream has truly seen me because the devil cannot take my form. And throughout the history of the Ummah there have been uh, great people who have reported encounters in this enigmatic way with the spirit of the Holy Prophet or with the spirits of the other departed ones. So the absent connection to the Sheikh, even if he's in Launceston, uh, Tasmania, through a process of still meditation and overcoming the ego and feeling uh, the presence of, of the Sheikh as one's active guide is common in our spirituality but is particularly emphasized in uh, the Naqshbandi and with Maulana Khaled in, in the 19th century and the great efflorescence of the tariqa, 
the current president of Turkey had a sheikh who was from that, that world of Maulana Khalid. Um, uh, you have uh, the idea of the rabata, uh, the active connection of the heart of the disciple with the sheikh, which is often misunderstood and always very difficult to express or put into words, but is something that is experiential um, and something that you can take or leave. So the way in which uh, Sheikh Abdullah continued to connect was through his calligraphic seal, his name written in Arabic, which uh, for uh, the sheikhs of many of the Turkish tariqas in particular establishes a reminder of the spiritual quality of the sheikh. So this is one of the things that he said. Let the seal be a doy to my presence so that your thoughts can be with me and my thoughts can be with you. Behold with awe the majesty of the name within this name. And remember with each heartbeat to repeat it always with love and true devotion. Thus ecstasy in harmony with that state where all is absolutely still will flood your being to drown both time and distance with all your senses in the ocean of his mercy. Where that love which lies behind the beauty of his majesty is truth and truth alone. It's one of the things that he left his disciples with when he moved on to the abode of eternity that by contemplating the abstract calligraphy of his seal, they might uh, still feel um, the, the barakah of his presence. And that's very tawadjo, very rabata, very nakshbandi. So I'll hopefully deactivate this now um, because we're done with the, the pictures. And uh, consider how uh, successful such a really very ancient and quite austere style of our spirituality can be. He liked Rumi, he liked the Dawran of the whirling dervishes, but he remained overwhelmingly Naqshbandi, very Sharia uh, compliant, even strict in his practices, uh, and insistent that one should be in the world and doing things in the world, hopefully bringing beauty to the world, um, making beautiful furniture and so forth, uh, rather than just remaining in the Khanukah with the, with the Tasbih. Uh, but what's also interesting about him is that he really never sought any kind of publicity. As I mentioned during his Majalis, it was kind of just him reading books and it was an austere experience. Uh, so, uh, and his disciples have been in touch with one or two of them. Australia and there's one who lives uh, in Scotland, not really particularly forthcoming because his view was that it wasn't about him, it was about the work. And if the work was beneficial, it lives on with his uh, surviving disciples. So if you kind of Google him, you won't really find anything at all, even though he uh, transformed so many lives. So his Ors is coming up, Rahmatullahi Ali. Uh, but one of the texts that he used to like a lot, um, and he would read generally from the uh, Turkish translation of it, uh, was one of the great Persian Naqshbandi classics called the Rashahat Ayn al-Hayat. Uh, the sprinklings, how does uh, Mokhtar Holland translate it? Beads of dew from the source of life. Ayn al-Hayat, Rashahat Ayn al-Hayat sprinklings, a uh, little hard to uh, translate. But he used to love this book very much. It's one of the great Naqshbandi teaching texts. Very good for sohbet because it's full of anecdotes. It's not particularly theoretical. Some of the later Naqshbandis in Turkey and in India developed complex metaphysical systems, 
engaging with or not engaging with the, uh, the metaphysics of Ibn Arabi, but generally it's a pragmatic, uh, sunnah-based, practical, uh, ethicizing type of uh, tariqah. So, uh, Sheikh Abdullah used to like this book a lot, uh, and so it was translated in the evening of his life uh, with a dedication to him, and uh, I think his seal is here, that's his seal. Um, Alhamdulillah wa shukrulillah. Um, uh, as a kind of gift to him from his disciples, which was uh, completed before, before his death, and translated by uh, another of the significant British Muslims of the time, uh, Mukhtar Holland, who was born in 1935, became a lecturer at Salas, uh, but was also heavily involved in the tariqa scene in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, and so forth, who uh, retired to a mobile home in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, where he translated a lot of useful books, uh, particularly the uh, collected works of Abdul Qadir Jilani, uh, and also translated the Rashahat Ayn al-Hayat. He was a good linguist. The Royal Navy had trained him lots of languages, including Russian. And again, I remember uh, meeting him when he was old and quite ill, and a very special person who basically just dedicated his life to the rather unprofitable activity of translating uh, ancient Naqshbandi text. So this one, Rashahat Ayn al-Hayat, one of the great classics uh, of our biographical literature by somebody called Maulana Ali Safi, Maulana Ali ibn Hussein Safi, uh, which again is uh, from a Naqshbandi world. And uh, before I finally get to my subject, let's just outline what that world was, not today, and Tasmania, but uh, back then in Khurasan, one of the incredible fountainheads, really, of uh, the inward as well as the outward uh, productivity of this Ummah. Khurasan had never been much before Islam touched it. A few ancient Zoroastrian texts, but basically not much. And then suddenly it became a great centre for all the Hadith scholars and then the Hanafi, many Shafi'i jurists, and uh, some of the great tariqas, um, the, the Kubrawiya and the Naqshbandiya, most uh, evidently, uh, and also the Yesaviya, which we tend not to experience here, but which are important in Central Asia, and the uh, Turkish world um, from Khawaja Ahmed Yesavi, one of the two great disciples of uh, Sheikh Yusuf Hamadani. So the founder of this tariqa, uh, properly speaking, because everything is subject to uh, the prophetic and external authority of the religion, the founders are all the holy prophet. And you can see the founder of all the Sunni madhabs is the holy prophet and his light reflected through the prism of the early generations in a particular way. The madhab of Iraq, the madhab of Medina, and geographically, because of the dispersal patterns of the Sahaba, you have what becomes regional schools. And something similar happens to the inward uh, life of Islam, the masharib, the drinking places, uh, but perhaps even more so. Because even though the fiqh recognizes, which is something which we often neglect, the importance of local custom as a component of the sharia, the Orf and the Ada, uh, thereby giving the application of Islamic law and even the content of Islamic law a difference according to time and place. Uh, similarly, the inward life, which deals with the human soul, which is much more part of a place and the culture of a place than our outward form, 
uh, that there is a certain regional specificity. However, some tariqas, the Sudanese tariqas that are just really in the Sudan, uh, but the great tariqas, uh, including the tariqas of the Aqtabi Arba, we have the four, found, four imams and the four Aqtab, and uh, Maulana Bahadeen Naqshband, certainly one of, of the four. And that tariqa really is kind of everywhere in the Ummah hasn't really touched Morocco much, although there's Naqshbandis in Morocco, um, but there's lots of Naqshbandis in Indonesia and uh, all over Central Asia. It's the tariqa, default tariqa in Central Asia, uh, East Africa, certainly in Turkey, certainly in Bosnia. Mm. Our sheikh from Cambridge left this morning to go to uh, tend to his father. We need to pray for Sheikh Ziad's father because he's having quite serious heart surgery tomorrow, and that's, you know, a Naqshbandi lineage everywhere in the Ummah, the Naqshbandiya. So very specific to Bukhara in its origin, but somehow manages to become a part of the universalism of Islam. So Khawaja Baha'uddin Naqshband dies 1389, one of the most transformative figures of the Ummah, um, from the village of Qasri Arifan, the palace of the knowers of God, as the village is still called, which is half an hour's drive outside Bukhara, and still a, an amazing place, a place of wonders, whatever your relationship to the tariqah or to tasawwuf might be, is still really beautiful. Um, huge area, hundreds of acres of lakes and mulberry trees, and there's a uh, an old madrasa there, and there's an old observatory where they'd work out the times of the prayers. Uh, Misafir Khane, a place for travellers, uh, several mosques, and it's a place where people in Bukhara, which is a kind of Sovietized urban space, unfortunately, tend to go the weekend just in order to enjoy the serenity of, of this place. Uh, and that's where he's buried. And when you go to these Khajagan, the great masters of Nakhchivandi line in Central Asia to their tombs, you see, hmm, they're really simple. Remember, uh, this is a Sunni tarash, a Sunnifying tariqa, and the graves are all basically open to the sky and to the to the rain. They have a kind of marble um, enclosure around them, uh, but the tombs themselves, uh, really simple. And you remember the kind of uh, austerity. That, that these people represent. So if we can ever visit Uzbekistan, which is, you can see Imam Bukhari and Imam Tirmidhi, it's, uh, everybody is there. Uh, Imam Maturidi, Imam Marghinani, it's uh, uh, an incredible place. Yeah, it's certainly worth visiting uh, the Mazar of Khawaja Baha'uddin Naqshband. And uh, his story is uh, one of those almost demoralizingly austere stories of Sufi transformation. Many teachers, including Amir Kulal, who saw him as a young man with promise, uh, and they got him to take the hard road to uh, sanctity. So for seven years, he was directed to be a road mender, in all his biographers. In other words, the roads were, as you can imagine, pretty dreadful, um, even worse than they are, thanks to the highways agency, sort of 10 years after the recession and the cuts, at nothing but potholes. So one of the things medieval Sufis liked to do was to go out and kind of just fix public 
utilities, just drag some rubble and put them in potholes. So he, he did this for seven years. Uh, and then he was directed uh, to look after animals for seven years. Any book on animal rights in Islam is going to love the stories of Khawaja Baha'uddin Naqshband. And uh, you can imagine medieval cities got lots of sick animals around and kind of neglected creatures that people have just chucked out and mangy dogs and so forth. So uh, as part of their ego-surpassing techniques, um, uh, they would uh, go out to serve the street animals. So let me just read his own words as documented in a later hagiography. In the beginning of my travel on this way, I met a lover of Allah and he told me, it seems as if you are one of us. I told him, I hope to be a friend to you. One time he asked me, how do you treat yourself? Nafs. I said to him, if I find something, I thank Allah, and if not, I am patient, sabir. He smiled and says, said, that is easy. The way for you is to burden your ego and to test it. If it loses food for one week, you must be able to keep it from disobeying you. I was very happy with his answer and I asked his support. He ordered me to help the needy and to serve the weak and to motivate the heart of the brokenhearted. He ordered me to keep humbleness and humility and tolerance. I kept his orders and I spent many days of my life in that manner. Then he ordered me to take care of animals, to cure their sicknesses, to clean their wounds and to assist them in finding their provision. I kept on that way until I reached the state that if I saw an animal in the street, I would stop and make way for it. Then he ordered me to look after the neighborhood dogs with truthfulness and humility and to ask them for support. He told me, because of your service to one of them, you will reach great happiness. I took that order in the hope that I would, want, I would find one dog and through service to that dog, I would find that happiness. One day, I was in the company of one of them and I felt a great state of happiness overcome me. I began crying in front of him until he fell on his back and raised his paws in the air. I heard a very sad voice or sound emanating from the dog, and so I raised my hands in dua and began to say Amin after the dog's kind of groaning. It was a sick dog, until the dog became silent. What then opened for me was a vision which brought me to a state in which I felt that I was part of every human being and part of every creation on this earth. So he has his, his fat, his mystical experience, beyond description. Uh, this is a characteristically Naqshbandi story. Okay, they're very Sharia compliant, but he's making amin to the du'a of a kind of stray dog in the streets of Bukhara. And the dog is going, and he's saying, amin, amin, everybody's it's crazy dervish. Just really lock him up. Uh, and that's really characteristic of the way that they see things. Service, khidmat is absolutely essential. In this case, service to these kind of uh, pie dogs in the street uh, that no one would give a second uh, glance to normally, but usually kick out of the way. So a difficult path, but uh, sa'adit is the word that's used great happiness. When the ego goes, really goes, rather than just feels proud of itself for allegedly not being there, when it really isn't there, there is a liberation uh, and a tejreed uh, and this strange circumstance of 
saying Amin to the du'a of, of a dog. And that's how he is launched and becomes Khwaja Baha'uddin Nakhshband with this amazing place outside uh, Bukhara. Uh, but again, I'm not going to focus on him during this uh, lecture, but on uh, the disciple of the disciple of his disciple, um, Allah Adin Bukhari, is one of his great murids, who uh, hands on this light to Maulana Yaqub Sharhi, who hands it on to uh, Khawaja Ubaidullah Ahrar, sometimes called Ubaidullah Tashkandi, um, uh, who is, you know, in Uzbekistan, they're kind of they overdose on these Khawaja Gun, they're, they're everywhere. And the places are really full of people, and you get people from India, Turkey, the Caucasus are visiting them. They're, they're really busy. Uh, and Khawaja Abdul Khalid Khujdavani, who establishes the eight principles on which the Tariqah is later based, who's the predecessor of Shah Baha'uddin Nakhshband, is in the town of Khujdavan. Uh, and Amir Kolal, Ramitani, uh, Baba Samasi, they're all there and uh, surrounded by rose gardens, and they're very serene, nice places. Uzbekistan is nice. Um, but Khawaja Ubaidullah Ahrar is kind of a special case. He's uh, buried in a, what used to be a village just outside, uh, outside um, Samarkand, uh, which is itself is kind of miracle city, despite the Sovietization. You can see the clash between the sacred and the secular maybe more clearly in Samarkand than in any other city on the earth, because you've got the Soviet blocks, grey, concrete, everywhere, rational, efficient, inhuman. And at the centre of town, you've got this Registan Square. Has anybody been to Registan Square? Samarkand, yeah. Uh, which is like this miracle. These three immense madrasas, sky blue, covered in the world's finest, finest ceramics, facing each other around this square. It's like, say, the three greatest cathedrals in Christendom kind of next to each other, and it's kind of aesthetic overload. And uh, you can see the tourists kind of looking at this and just not saying anything, because it's just such a staggeringly serene, brilliant statement of the, the, the greatness of our civilization. Um, so there's that, and one of the madrasas is open again. I remember my, on my first visit, it was still the Museum of Atheism. Oh, depressing. Uh, so all these little Uzbek school children would be taken and shown these kind of waxworks of how the mullahs would deceive the people and take their money. Uh, that's gone now, alhamdulillah. Atheism turned out not to be quite as dialectically inevitable as uh, uh, Marx and Lenin thought. And there's madrasa students back then. In one of the, um, uh, I think it's the Tilekari madrasa, one of the three, uh, and it's uh, restored to something of its, uh, its intended function. But yeah, you shouldn't die without seeing Registan Square. It's one of the great uh, sites on earth. So Khawaja uh, Ubaidullah Ahrar is buried uh, in the, you know, near his house, his uh, Khanaqah, his dervish retreat, and, uh, Kashgir, a suburb of uh, Samarkand. And again, it's kind of simple. There's no sky blue dome or anything. It's just kind of this square of a stone retaining wall and then a simple tombstone and a million Uzbeks and others there uh, receiving the blessings. Uh, but 
Uh, again, characteristically Naqshbandi, and we'll see this as we progress through his life, although I don't mainly want to do biodata, but to kind of uh, go to the Russia hat and uh, recite the way Sheikh Abdullah used to do some of his, uh, his words and incidents in his life. But uh, he started off inconceivably poor uh, and put through the sort of refiner's fire of deliberate uh, poverty for years and years as part of the process of overcoming his ego. But later in his life, he becomes one of the richest men in the world, at least ostensibly, because everybody wants his du'a and all of the landowners and the emirs are giving him huge areas of land. Uh, so that according to some of the waqf documents and the Russians when they take over and sort of regularise their Central Asian colonies in the, the, the 1870s, sort of make a register of this, maybe 3,200 villages and their lands and estates are um, his waqf. And somebody called uh, Joanne Gross, who's an American expert on Central Asia and the Naqshbandis, has written on the waqf years, which is still there in the... Uh, University Library in, in Tashkent and indicate the enormous amount of stuff that he ostensibly owned, finally eliminated, nationalised by the Soviets, of course, in the 1920s, so they could put up these grey tower blocks and the collective farms where millions of people died. Um, not a great uh, ending to that story, but for five centuries, Central Asia was really economically dominated by these awqaf, which were used uh, to support sacred knowledge, the madrasas, to build mosques, to do things like to build and maintain bridges, and also to establish the khanaqas, the lodges of uh, Khawaja, Ubaidullah Ahraz, Naqshbandi, Tariqa, particularly to the north. Just call to mind, if you can, the geography of where we are. Uh, the Eurasian landmass, right in the middle of it, is what we now call Uzbekistan although that's not really a real historical designation. It's part of what used to be Khorasan and then became Turkestan. Um, but it's so ethnically mixed. People of Samarkand still basically speak Farsi. They don't speak um, Uzbek, um, unless there's a policeman around, but basically it's Farsi speaking. Uh, and this Turkestan, if you were looking at it from the rest of the Ummah, um, or from China, which it was closely connected to, or Mongolia, where the Mongols came from, or from Western Europe, Marco Polo goes through. It's the centre of everything, but what is there to the north? To the south, there's Persia and India and amazing things. To the east, there's China. To the west, there's the Silk Road. To the north... Hmm. Has anybody seen Antonio Banderas in that film about Ibn Fadlan, the 13th warrior? It's a kind of stupid uh, Michael Crichton horror film, but it's based on the life of Ibn Fadlan, who is this 10th century Baghdad traveller, who decided to go north. What happens if you go north from the Ummah at that time? Not China, India, Europe, Africa, but north. Well, uh, what happens north of Tashkent, Samarkand, Bukhara is, of course, enormous steppe land flat, undulating grass, like the American prairies that seems to go on forever full of wild naked men with sort of feathers through their bald heads who are likely to kidnap you and take you into uh, eternal uh, exile 
difficult nomadic uh, warrior peoples. Later you get the Kipchaks and the Cossacks and people coming from that world um, on tough steppe ponies. The weather is excruciatingly awful because you're dealing with the center of the landmass. So in the summer, it's oh, shockingly hot. In the winter, even in Uzbekistan, average temperatures in Samarkand uh, in January, February, round about minus 30 centigrade. It's kind of uh, a deep freeze. Um, and remember, these people who are cleaning the roads and looking after the street animals are living in that. Uh, but to the north of it, you've got oh, Siberia. Uh, let's go to India instead, if you were sort of, somebody wanted to do traveling in that part of the world. Mm, India sounds nice. Uh, so not many people went up there. Uh, and the Islamizing of those regions, which was a big fact of our history, comes about uh, partly because the Mongols, who don't mind being cold and sitting on ponies for three months and drinking horse milk, and they conquer those areas. And uh, after the death of Genghis Khan, you have the fragmentation of the Mongol Empire and the Altan Ordo, the Golden Horde, takes over much of what's now Ukraine, the Russian steppe, uh, the, the North Caucasus and uh, Western Siberia. And as Genghis Khan's descendants Islamize, so the Mongols become the, Mongol, the, the Mongols become the Mughals in India, and then uh, the Golden Horde also become an Islamic polity, you get significant Muslim populations established right up there, which is still, still the case. In northern Russia, you can find Muslim communities. Um, there was a Khanate of Sibir, Siberia, before Ivan the Terrible crashed through. Um, it's, uh, kind of amputated bit of the Ummah. But back in this period, up there to the north, <clears throat> problematic. If you've seen the 13th warrior, you'll see that it's Omar Sharif, who's kind of on a horse, and Antonio Banderas, and they're going to the north because of some crazy story about uh, Viking zombies that they've been prophetically um, chosen to go and combat. It's uh, not the real Ibn Fadlan. But anyway, the riding north, and you get Vikings who are kind of not the kind of people you like to bump into on a dark night. And then you've got these sort of proto-Cossacks and it's hard and not a tree in sight. So nobody really went up there except the Naqshbandiya because one of the usages of the uh, awqaf of uh, Khawaja Ubaidullah Ahrar was specifically to try and get the hardier type of murid to settle to the north. Rather, as the Cossacks, who are a kind of quasi-church organization, were used by the Russians several centuries later to colonize the same territories, um, same sort of, of principle. Uh, so that was one of the uses of this enormous amount of wealth that came into his coffers, which he himself didn't touch um, because of this Nakhshbandi tradition of um, not accepting the futur uh, gifts to the dervishes, but uh, still a reminder of how economically uh, and dawa-wise uh, uh, significant these, these movements were. So uh, let's uh, just get stuck into this nice text, uh, much nicer than my own words. Uh, what have we got here? Something... Okay, this is just a reminder about the Sharia compliance of these people. Let's start with that, with that thought. Uh, and this is um, uh, uh, Maulana Ali 
uh, Safi himself writing. Mm-hmm. Among the preachers whose khutbas I have greatly enjoyed, I must mention Maulana Shamsuddin. When Maulana Shamsuddin was delivering a khutbah, he could not hold back his tears and he wept convulsively. In order to understand the reason for his weeping, I asked and listened with careful attention. He said, Mirza Shahrukh, one of the great sort of Mongol rulers, is known as the emperor of the Muslims. According to what I've heard, one of his companions was called to account for claiming to have had relations with one of his concubines. And he was killed at Mirza's command by being thrown down from the minaret. This penalty has no connection with the rule of the sacred law. The first question is whether or not the alleged crime is actually proved. Even if it is proved, this is not its penalty. In the sacred law, there is no penalty in the form of execution by being thrown down from the minaret. If it's not proved, it means the man is definitely innocent. And how can this injustice to a Muslim be explained? From every point of view, Mirza's every action is inconsistent with the sacred law. So this is in his khutbah, and he's got a Mongol ruler breathing down his throat, but is not hesitating to point out that the sacred law is here being violated. I understood that the Maulana was weeping for this reason. In those so attached to the religion, nothing is felt more acutely than anguished concern for the sacred law and the pain caused by disrespect for the sacred law. Here's, here's another one, another khutbah story. Maulana Shihabuddin Sayyarami was the teacher of the Sheikh Zainuddin Khafi and the venerable Maulana Yaqub Charhi, who is Khawaja Ubaidullah's own Sheikh. When he came to Samarkand, he was requested to deliver a khutbah. The venerable Maulana Muhammad Attar Samarkandi, one of the great masters of wisdom, Khajigan, was also there at the time. Maulana Shihabuddin accepted the invitation, and before mounting the pulpit, the minbar, he bowed down and kissed the lowest step on its staircase. On seeing this sight, Maulana Muhammad Attar stood up at once, left the congregation and went out of the mosque. When Maulana Shihabuddin observed this situation, he descended from the minbar without starting his khutbah and followed after Maulana Muhammad Attar. He caught up with him and asked, what impropriety did I commit so that you left my sermon without waiting for me to say a word? And he received this answer. We are constantly striving to ensure that no bid'ah remains among the people. But what about you? From where did you acquire the bid'ah of kissing the lowest step while mounting the minbar? In what ayah and what hadith did you see this prescribed? Which of the great imams did this? If such a practice emerges from people of knowledge like you, how shall we be able ever to attend a khutbah? So these stories are also part of this. This is not some kind of dervish latitudinarian. This is, um, uh, this is Sunni, Sunni uh, Tarash, very <coughs> Sunnifying, uh, emphatic pro-Sharia uh, Islam. <coughs> now, <coughs> maybe one of the interesting paradoxes of our history is this phenomenon that academics and historians are increasingly discussing called the Timurid Renaissance. And one groans and thinks, oh dear, here's an attempt by somebody or other to prove that Islam was kind of on the track that 
the West has followed, and so Renaissance, what a wonderful thing it was in Europe. So the Muslims have done it, so uh, it's kind of an apologetic thing. But nonetheless, uh, <coughs> the descendants of Timur in Herat uh, in the 14th, 15th centuries did create a civilization that was quite extraordinarily productive um, and brilliant. And uh, what we need to reflect on is the fact that it was also absolutely under the sign of Naqshbandi Sufism. So this tariqah that says, I'm not going to hear your khutbah if you're kissing the step of the minbar because that's a bid'ah, is also producing the miracle of Herat. Even today in Herat you can see ruins of buildings that are kind of miracles. You know, the lapis lazuli that they have in Afghanistan, so there's amazing sky blue tiles and the calligraphy, and it's like seeing calligraphy in heaven. Those buildings are uh, incomparable. Uh, now, the Timurid dynasty is founded by Timur, who is uh, buried in Uzbekistan, Gur Amir, one of the great sites of, of Samarkand, huge dome. Um, and underneath it, there is his grave under the biggest piece of jade that's ever been discovered anywhere in the world, and it's still there. Um, kind of Chinese-Mongol idea that jade preserves from corruption, thought to be from heaven. It's still there, and it's a very atmospheric place, even when you remember that the guy probably killed millions of people and piled up the skulls of Muslims in great pyramids and was one of the bad Mongols, really. Um, uh, from the Baralas tribe, one of the remnants of Genghis Khan's original um, bloodletting horde, um, uh, he rules a lot of India, Central Asia. His big cities, though, were kind of in Central Asia, Samarkand, Balkh, Herat. Uh, now, one of the biggest questions in all of Islamic history is how these sort of axe murderers who come from these shamanistic, Buddhistic regions of Mongolia and build these mountains of skulls and kill half the population of Hungary and it's kind of uh, a holocaust, but ten times worse. Um, when they took the city of Balkh, which was a city of 100,000 people, only 40 people who hid are supposed to have survived and much of Central Asia is still depopulated, they say, because, because of that, everybody died. How is it that those people, kind of, sort of, I don't know, the Mordor of the age, some kind of completely dark negativity, um, that they became Muslim and end up producing you know, not just the wonders of India, the Taj Mahal, blah, blah, but also in Afghanistan, in Herat, the Timurid Renaissance, uh, it's quite a transformation. And it's worth reading around that, the conversion of the Mongols to Islam, one of the big significant strategic facts of history. Everybody in Europe was praying for them to become Catholics. Some of them did. Uh, it was kind of touch and go, because uh, the early Mongols had more or less prohibited the practice of Islam, and there were now Buddhist temples all over Iran, and uh, the Khalifa had been trampled to death, 1258, uh, and it was, uh, seemed to be the end of the world. Uh, the first uh, Mongol ruler to convert was Ghazan, 
Razan Khan, who was brought up by a Chinese Buddhist monk, um, but converts through processes that you can uh, read about in Thomas Arnold's book, The Preaching of Islam. There's a whole chapter on the conversion of the Mongols, which uses something called the, the Taj al-Tawarikh of Rashid al-Din, which is one of the big uh, medieval Persian history books. Um, and you can read about the role of the Sufis, particularly the Kubrawi Tariqa, uh, Seyfuddin Yahya Bakharzi in particular, and the uh, Naqshbandi Tariqa in converting them. And there's a lesson for us in that. Uh, because 1258, Mongols sack Baghdad. Maybe they even used the Mongol word for shock and awe. Uh, I know the Americans do it, but what is the different response of the Ummah back then? Not shouting and terrorism and suicide bombing and stabbing the Mongol soldier in the market in Baghdad, uh, even though the Adhan was prohibited and halal slaughter carried the death sentence and Islam was kind of prescribed. But instead, dhikr, patience, and a determination not just to survive and be angry, uh, but to convert the Mongols. In other words, to see them as human beings who need something better. So pity instead of anger. And as a result, you have lots of extraordinary stories about the, the patience of some of the great Sufi sheikhs, um, Maulana Rashid al-Din in Samarkand, summoned to the court of, the, of one of the pagan khans. Uh, and his entourage, the Mongols, said, uh, we want to have a laugh, so please show us how you Persians pray. So he prays to rakas, and then one of them comes over to him, grabs his head and bangs it on the floor in the hope of making him angry, so he'll say something that gets him put to death. And then uh, Amir says, you Persians, look at you down there, you're like dogs. And he just says, but for Islam, we would be worse than dogs. And he's allowed to go, and through those moments of the extraordinary dignity of these people, you find that eventually people like Ghazan uh, and also Uljaitul, Uljaitul becomes... Uh, first a Christian, because his mother is a Nestorian princess, and then he becomes Muslim, so he's baptised as Nicholas. Uh, great church bells all over Europe. Ha, half the Ummah of Islam is ruled by King Nicholas now, and they think uh, the Messiah is going to come, but he ends up becoming Muslim because of the spiritual quality of these people. So, um, a vain thought, if uh, uh, Radical friends in Baghdad and Mosul, instead of doing what they chose to do with all of that anger, had done what the Naqshbandis and others had done six centuries before. Well, who knows, maybe Paul Wolfowitz would be Mahmoud or something, and the world would look very different. But this is the power of monotheism, that even those you know, monster Mongol <coughs> barbarians, uh, they have souls too, and they can be transformed. So there's a lesson for us in that, and it's worth reading about, about these people. So the Timurids, by this time, they've been Muslim for a century, and they create this incredible little jewel in the crown of Islamic civilization. One of the great Persian painters, Kemal ad-Din Behzad, you can see his works at the British Library, uh, extraordinary refinement uh, is from there. The Timurid ruler of Herat Ulugh Beg builds about the most famous observatory 
in the Islamic world, or maybe anywhere before the invention of Galileo and lenses. This is done through uh, naked eye observation, um, but you can still see it in, in Samarkand with extraordinary ways of calculating the elevation trajectory of the, the, the traveling stars. Um, great works of architecture, the Shahi Zinda in Samarkand, possibly the world's most beautiful cemetery, staggering place. Um, the mausoleum of Khawaja Ahmed Yasavi, which is in Turkestan, which is now in Kazakhstan. It came from one of those places full of snow and uh, uh, scary men on horseback. But they're going up there. And he really becomes the patron saint of what is now Kazakhstan. Uh, and a wonderfully beautiful building. Um, uh, so Herat becomes uh, this huge center. And the Sultan, Hossein Baikara, it's again, there's no time to go through his story, but it's a very dramatic story because he's kind of uh, exiled and in hiding for 10 years and then comes, uh, comes to power, uh, capturing Herat. He's Timur's great-grandson. Uh, and he's very educated. We have his autobiography indicating his Naqshbandi uh, sympathies. Um, and one of the things that we find in Timurid uh, Herat is a, a, a great conviviality between Sunni and Shi'i, uh, which was not the case uh, in some parts of Iran, where there were places like Sabzavar, Yazd, Kerman, where there was very strong uh, disputatiousness. But the Timurids didn't uh, appreciate this uh, at all. Uh, and so you have in Sultan Hussein Baikara's uh, uh, account of the Ahl al-Bayt, a kind of what uh, the Arabs used to call before the current ruptures, Tashayyu Hassan. In other words, a good sympathy with Ahl al-Bayt and Karbala and Imam Hussein, rather than the kind of extremism. Uh, and he, he arranged these extraordinary festivals, street festivals. Um, so one modern Orientalist calls it the Florence of the East. You know how the Italians love to have these street festivals with flags and, and, and knights on horseback and so forth. Uh, it was very much a, a fluorescent kind of place. Uh, Abdurrahman Jami is there. Now, if you're a Madrasa student, you'll think, uh, it's his commentary on Ibn al-Hajib. It's the most dull Arabic book ever. Mullah Jami in Turkey now means oh, excruciating Arabic syntax. But that's just one of his books. He's also the author of oh, the Haft Aurang, Seven Thrones, these inc this incredible uh, series of stories, Joseph and Zuleikha, Salaman and Absal, Leila and Majnun, in the most exquisite book-length Persian <coughs> couplets. And they're some of the, the classics of our civilization. But Mullah Abdurrahman Jami also, Naqshbandi. Uh, Last year I was in Tartu in Estonia, um, where they happen to have in their little university library one of the world's great copies of the Haft Aurang, uh, which was a gift from an uh, 18th century Persian king to the Tsarist ambassador. So somehow it survived Hitler and Stalin and the Luftwaffe. And, it's there. Uh, staggeringly beautiful thing, uh, a jewel, uh, and one of the monuments of our civilization. And you see the calligraphy, the binding, the illumination, everything perfect, and it's from a Naqshbandi culture. Mm. 
So don't think that this emphasis on poverty, self-naughting, Sharia compliance means you can't have one of the world's great civilizations, uh, the beauty of Timurid Herat. No, it's not, it's not like that. It's not like the desert against the city, austerity against beauty. It's, um, it's much more sophisticated than that. So Abdurrahman Jami dies 1492. Uh, with his Haft Aurang and his books on irrigation and his grammar book and his interest in astronomy, mathematics, uh, the Nafahat al-Uns, which is one of the big texts which we have on Naqshbandi biography, basically focusing on 15th century uh, Naqshbandi's Nafahat al-Uns, which means something that the breathings or the exhalations of intimacy. Very nice text. Ali Shir Nava'i, another of the, the jewels in the crown of the Timurid uh, uh, Renaissance, who becomes uh, kind of a senior minister at the Timurid court and possibly the greatest of all early Turkic poets. They used a language called Chagatai, as the Mongols switched over about a century from Mongolian to a kind of uh, Turkic, uh, this Chagatai Turkish, which isn't spoken any longer, uh, includes a lot of Arabic and Persian words. It's quite archaic. Uh, but the main street in Tashkent now is named after him. And uh, uh, again, uh, a great uh, enthusiast for the uh, Naqshbandis. He built 17 mosques just in Herat. Um, His Munajat, uh, his book on the benefits of old age, which he writes when he's old, um, and uh, also a, biograph- a list of biographical sort of notes on the great Naqshbandi saints. Um, Kamaladin Hossein Va'iz Kashefi, uh, author of um, a number of great uh, Persian texts, um, including the Anvari Soheli, which was a set text for British India office officials in the 18th century when they wanted to deal with the Indian elite, so that meant you had to know your Persian literature. Um, uh, so the first printed edition was in Baldock, if you can imagine, if you've been to Baldock in <laughs> Hertfordshire. Uh, they did several editions there. Uh, but also uh, the Raldata Shohada, which of course has a little version which we recite here in Cambridge, which is a commemoration of the sufferings of the Ahl al-Bayt. Remember this interesting thing, that this is a Naqshbandi city, and you think the Naqshbandis, their Silsila, is the only one that goes back through Abu Bakr al-Siddiq. And yet they're producing the civilization that is so open to the Ahl al-Bayt and produces uh, the Rawdat al-Shuhada, which even amongst the Shia is the preferred recital for Muharram. They do it in villages in Iran. It's in 10 chapters. One chapter is recited on each of the first 10 days of Muharram. <coughs> He's a Naqshbandi. And the 12 are Shia, I love it. They do it in Lucknow and places in India as well, which is interesting in terms of contemporary ideas of, of uh, these polarities. It's not either or, um, it can be both and. Uh, so uh, the author of this book, um, Molana Ali Safi is the son of Kashifi, who produces uh, the Rawdata Shuhada, so very much in the uh, Naqshbandi uh, tradition. So we have the Naqshbandis doing this rather extraordinary thing of 
being instrumental in converting the mass murdering tribes to Islam uh, and ushering in a certain way the second half of Islamic history when things become very sort of Persianate and Turkic and the Mughals are not like the uh, earlier dynasties uh, and the greatness of the Golden Horde, the Crimea, the Ottomans in a sense come out of this. Uh, and in the midst of this sort of Naqshbandi revival, not just of the spirit, but of the civilization, arts, crafts, poetry, etc., of Islam, you have Al Khawaj or Ubaidullah Ahrar, um, who is born in 1403 in what was then called Shesh, which is now Tashkent, which has become the Uzbek capital. In earlier times, if you were Shashi, some of the great Hanafi fuqaha were Shashi. It meant you were from Tashkent. If you look at the map, you can see this is kind of further out, further away from the Middle East than Bukhara and Samarkand. It's kind of, it's not terribly, it's like an hour's drive from the Kazakh border. So up there, you've got you know, the, the wild men and the treeless steppes um, <coughs> and the snakes. Uh, but uh, Tashkent Shash becomes really a major outpost of Maturidi, Hanafi, and then Naqshbandi civilization. So Khawaja Ubaidullah Ahrar is, is from there. And we learn all kinds of things about his childhood. And we're so used to Muslim hagiographies that say, oh, we memorized the Quran at the age of five. And he was stunned all of his teachers in Hadith by the age of seven, and etc., etc. It seems he was a bit of a a non-academic child, and his parents kind of despaired sending him to Madrasa, and Madrasa, and he didn't really <coughs> get into it. Um, and we have the account in uh, this sort of eyewitness account of how he recalled his childhood, if I can find where we start from. This is what he himself said. I used to go to and from school. Uh, my heart was always with Allah. And I assume that everyone else was just like me. One cold winter day, while passing through the countryside, my foot sank into the mud. While trying to set it free, I also let the hem of my coat get stuck. A state of raflet, heedlessness, overcame me at that moment. Being so caught up in this business, he's got his boot stuck, I was distracted from remembering Allah. A young villager was busy ploughing nearby, and I scolded myself, saying, look, even in such agonising labour, that young man is thinking of his maker. How can you forget him just because of a little effort to retrieve your foot from the mire? Sobbing and blubbering, I burst into tears. At that stage, I still supposed that everyone was the same as myself, and I assumed that it was normal, obvious to remember Allah at every moment. Until I reached the age of puberty, I could not understand that there were people heedless of Allah. I thought that Allah had created everyone to be aware of himself. In fact, as I later came to realize, not to be heedless of Allah can be a divine favor, peculiar to only a few of his servants. Or it is a divine favour, peculiar to only a few of his servants. It can only be obtained through spiritual exercise and struggle with the lower self, though it's a property that few seem able to acquire, even by those 
means. According to the Khaja's nephew, Khaja Ishaq, while I and the other children were playing games, we would try to get the venerable Khaja, Ubaidullah, to join us, but we could not persuade him, in spite of our most persistent efforts. He would stand in a corner, happy, as if playing by himself, and he would remain in his own special state. Yep. And then we have some information about how he was when he became uh, a little older. The Venerable Khawaja himself relates, uh, In a dream, during the early stage of my spiritual development, I saw the Venerable Khawaja Baha'uddin Naqshband. He exerted such power of dispensation on my inner being that no strength was left in my legs. Then he suddenly turned and started walking away. Making my utmost effort, I ran after him and caught up with him. He turned back and said, may you be blessed. Sometime later, I also saw the venerable Khawaja Muhammad Parsa in a dream. He tried to affect me with his power of dispensation, but he could not succeed. The venerable Khawaja again relates this. In the palace of Ulugh Bey Mirza, remember he's the one who's built this amazing observatory, there was an officer charged with the enforcement of penalties he used to administer the penalty of flogging. The officer sent word to Tashkent, announcing that the sons of the sheikhs were to assemble in a gathering and that he wished to see them. He duly gathered together 17 young men, of whom I was the youngest. Each time that officer shook someone's hand, the person was seen to enter a state of rapture. When my turn came, I decided to resist that state if it started to overtake me too, and I was successful in my resistance. The officer was very pleased with my resistance. He brought me to the front and heaped all kinds of favours upon me. For my part, I wondered how someone could be endowed with such inner strength and yet be engaged in political and police administration in the service of the Bay. I was utterly baffled by this, but he read my thoughts and he said, I was a pupil of the venerable Khaja Hassan Attar. I spent a long time at his side and I strove to enrich my inner being but success eluded me. When I expressed my pain to the Venerable Khwaja, he instructed me to work at the Sultan's command and to attend once again to my inner being by secretly helping the oppressed. He also wrote a letter to those concerned, declaring me free to follow my own guidance. With the help of the shock I received from this action and from realizing that the Venerable Khwaja expected me to succeed, I finally attained my goal through performing the duty that he had imposed upon me. Since I patiently endured the agony I suffered, whenever I could not help the Muslims in trouble, the poor and the unfortunate, those whose rights were being violated, I was able to obtain the degree you now witness. So that's another kind of tribulation that leads to an unexpected sort of high spiritual state. The Khawaja is telling him, go and work as a policeman for the, for the government, secretly try to help the, the poor and the oppressed, and the suffering that you'll experience whenever you're not successful in that will be an overcoming of your ego and you'll achieve this enlightenment as a result of that. I was in the early stage of my career. My mother owned a farm. She sent me a quantity of wheat, which was brought by me by a nomadic Turk, which means basically one of these kind of half shamanistic rough guys from the north. Turk is basically a a rude word um, 
in this culture. While I was busy storing the wheat, that Turk went off with his sacks. It was unclear where he had gone and which road he had taken. At that moment, a dreadfully disturbing question took root inside me. Why had I put myself at fault by failing to seek spiritual grace from this simple fellow? It seemed that I had missed an opportunity that was important. Leaving the wheat unattended, I set out after that Turk. I caught up with him halfway along the city road and I begged, take notice of me, cast a caring glance on my condition. Perhaps Allah will put me in contact with the blessing of your spiritual influence and I thus may be protected and my knotty problems may be solved. The man looked at me with astonishment and he said, presumably you're practicing the teaching of the Turkish sheikhs. Whomever you see, assume that he is Khidr. Assume that every night is the Laylatul Qadr. As myself, I'm a Turk who lives in the desert and I hardly know how to wash my face correctly. How can the things you seek exist in me? That Turk was deeply affected by my plea so much that he raised his hands and offered a du'a on my behalf. Through the blessed grace of that supplication, I experienced revelations and disclosures within my inner being. No one knows what prayer of supplication Allah will accept and under what conditions. That is a secret. This is again characteristically Nakrabandi teaching that you assume the best of everybody. Such and such a person may be al-Khidr. He may be the kind of smelly guy who's bringing you wheat on his bullock cart, but he may be the one who can help you to overcome ego and, and reconnect with, with ruh. During my childhood, the power of imagination at my disposal was beyond my understanding, to the point where I could not even conceive of going outside the house on my own. Then one night I experienced a state in which involuntarily I felt compelled to visit the tomb of the venerable Sheikh Abu Bakr Shashi. I jumped up and left the house. I went to the tomb. I sat facing the tomb of the venerable Sheikh. No trace of fear affected me. I stayed like that for an hour. From there I moved over to the tomb of Sheikh Khavan Tahor. I was still unafraid. I've also visited the other tombs. At none of them did I feel afraid. Despite my young age and my wild imagination, in the shade of the spirituality of the saints, not one atom of fear was inspired in me by those awesome tombs in the darkness of night. When this state of mind began to captivate me, I made a nightly habit of wandering around all the tombs of Tashkent. The tombs were situated quite far from one another, but I used to visit them all in one night. At that time, I just set foot in the age of puberty. The people of my household soon became worried about these nightly wanderings of mine, so they set my foster brother on my tail and tried to find out whether or not I was doing something bad. One night, when I was next to the tomb of Sheikh Khavan Tahor, along came my foster brother. As soon as he reached my side, he laid his hand on mine and began, began to shudder. He said that he could see strange and mysterious things. I sent him home. When he got there, he told my relatives, you need not be suspicious of him any longer. You must realize that he has fallen into a different state from ours. In the dark night, at the head of tombs into which 10 men could not be inserted at the same time, he stays all alone until morning. After learning this, the people of the household understood that I had been endowed with a spiritual state of divine origin, and they wiped their bad suspicions from their minds.
One other night, I was sitting at the tomb of Sheikh Zain al-Din. The tomb was on the outskirts of the city and in a lonely spot. There was a madman in Tashkent, a fellow with a huge body like a statue, and he had killed someone in the city in recent days. People were afraid of him, and they kept their distance from any place where he had been seen. Suddenly, while I was at the head of the tomb, he appeared and screamed, Get up! Get out of here! Go away! I gave him no response and did not interrupt my vigil. The man went on shouting, but I still took no notice. He sprang forward, plucked some dry herbs from the head of the tomb and made them into a bouquet. Then he opened the lantern burning at the head of the tomb and ignited the herbs. His purpose was to set the burning herbs on top of my head. As he was approaching me in order to do this, a sudden gust of wind extinguished the flaming herbs in his hand. The madman was utterly enraged. This time he launched a verbal tirade and this state of affairs continued until the morning. Suddenly, just as the day was dawning, he disappeared like a bat that had seen the light. He had gone to Tashkent and there in the early morning hour he turned the market upside down. He also killed a man. The people ganged together and beat him to death with sticks. As the Venerable Khaja himself relates, people tell of certain things having appeared to them from the tombs. Nothing of the kind had ever shown itself to me. So he's there, but in a state of sobriety. While the Venerable Khwaja Abdul Khaliq Ujdavani and his affiliates were strolling through the market quarter and the bazaar, the noise and hubbub of the people and the merchants reached their ears as the sound of remembrance, dhikr. They never heard anything other than the remembrance. In the early stage of my own development, the remembrance had become so predominant and preponderant for me that I heard the remembrance in every sound and whisper of the wind. One day, a rich man from Samarkand held a wedding feast. At the invitation of a friend, I had gone to a spot near the site of the feast. All the shouting and calling of the wedding guests, as well as all the sounds of music, came to my ears like the dhikr, like the remembrance. I neither heard nor listened to anything else. At that time, I was 18 years of age. Then it moves on to his adult life. I was in Herat at the time of Mirza Shahrukh, that's the prince. As far as money was concerned, I did not have a bean. This is Mukhtar's slightly idiomatic translation. The turban on my head was in tatters. As soon as I knotted one part of it, the rest would come undone and dangle loose. One day, as I was passing through the marketplace, a beggar asked me for something. I had no money to give him, so I approached a cook, removed the turban from my head and said, this turban is old, but it is clean. It could be used for drying and wiping when you are washing the pots and pans. Take it and give this poor beggar a dish of food. After giving the beggar enough to satisfy his hunger, the cook set the turban before me with great politeness, but I did not accept it and I went on my way. The Venerable Khaja relates, I worked in the service of many different people, but I had nothing, not even a horse or a donkey to call my own. I changed my kaftan once a year because its cotton padding wore out. Every three years I managed to get by with one fur coat and one jacket. One winter season, together with Maulana Musafir, I was sitting in a room with a view of the street. The floor of the room was below the street level. Rain, water and mud leaked into our room. In the mornings, we used to go and perform the ritual prayer in the congregational mosques. My clothes and my undergarments were so flimsy that half of my body never got warm. 
In all the time I spent away from home, I could never easily obtain a couple of jugs of warm water for my ritual ablution. When I needed to restore my ritual purity, I would sometimes leave my sheikh's company and go all the way into town. I remember this is probably a place that's completely frozen. The thought occurred to me, if only the venerable sheikh would consider letting the spiritual paupers, the fuqarat, dervishan, have a drop of warm water so that they could perform their ablutions here in the icy winter. Alas, that favour was never granted. Here we are, ready to make proper use of a cubicle, a lamplight, water, a steam bath and a bite to eat, yet we're all caught up, caught up in wrangling, unaware of the priceless opportunity we are missing. In the time of Mirza Shahrukh, there was a rich man, the chief of the moneylenders, who showed great respect for the path of the Khwajagan. In particular, he recognized the special grace of the venerable Khwaja Muhammad Parsa. I would not eat at the table of anyone in the city, and I refused all the invitations of this notable individual. Ramadan finally arrived. The man came to me and said, during this Ramadan, you will break your fast every evening at my place. I asked to be excused. He insisted and insisted. When I repeated my request to be excused, he said, if you do not break fast every evening at my place, let my wife be divorced with a triple repudiation. Reluctantly, I was thus obliged to act in accordance with the man's insistent demand. I experienced much help and positive interest from this man. In those times, I did not have the means to, to reciprocate. I did have the means later on, but the man had died by that time. I was at least in a position to give his son 10,000 dinars, as well as providing him with some other services. Throughout his entire life, the venerable Khaja Obaidullah Tashkandi never once accepted a present from anyone. One of the great masters stitched a kaftan for him out of white lamb's wool with his own hand and sent it to him. He took every care to ensure that the present was made of lawful material. When the venerable Khaja saw it, he said, this kaftan is permissible to wear because the scent of rectitude and lawfulness drifts from it. Not once in my whole life, however, have I accepted a gift from anyone. Convey our apology to the venerable master and present this to him as our gift this time. So lots of stories about um, sharia scrupulousness. When you accept a gift, you can never be entirely sure of its origin. At the age of 24, he moved to Herat, where he stayed for five years, establishing fellowship with the Sufi sheikhs. Then at the age of 29, he returned to his native land. After that, in order to obtain lawful sustenance, he embarked on a farming venture in partnership with an associate. In a short space of time, due to the great blessing Allah bestowed on his venture, he was incapable of managing it himself, so he appointed an agent in his stead. The venerable Khaja's wealth and property increased at such a rate that the accounting office could hardly keep pace with it. On the second occasion, when this poor creature, that's um, Ali Safi, rubbed his face on the venerable Khwaja's doorstep, Persian hyperbole, one of his agents informed me that his fields numbered more than 1,300. In those days, he was engaged in the purchase of many additional fields. 
in just one part of his farmlands, an area called Joibar, which means irrigated lots of streams, 3,000 workmen were employed. As the Khaja himself relates, my tithe to the court granary of Sultan Ahmed Mirza amounts to hundreds of thousands of measures per annum. Whenever produce was stored in the venerable Khaja's granary, its quantity had always increased by the time it was taken out. As for those who witnessed this supernatural wonder, they totally reinforced their bond of connection with the venerable Khawaja. When giving his own explanation of this marvel, he would say, my wealth is for the benefit of the poor. That is why it has this particular quality. From the beginning to the end of his path of perfection, there were no limits to the venerable Khawaja's help and kindness bestowed in the highest degree on acquaintances and strangers, on friends and foes alike. His service to one and all without distinction became a legend on everybody's tongue. As he himself relates, I took it upon myself to care for three invalids who were lying in Maulana Qutbuddin's madrasa in Samarkand. Because their disease was getting worse, they were making their beds filthy. I washed them by hand and changed their underclothes by hand. Since this service of mine was very frequent, their disease infected me too. I also became bedridden. Despite this condition of mine, I continued to fetch a few jugs of water and wash the invalids clean. On the spiritual path of the masters of wisdom, whatever the moment demands, one must act accordingly. Remembrance and vigil, dhikr and muraqaba, uh, can only be practiced when the situation does not call for service to the Muslims. So priority is service. Since a service may be the means of winning the heart, it takes precedence over dhikr and muraqaba. Some consider the performance of nawafil, optional acts of worship, to be more important than service. As a matter of fact, however, the prosperity of the heart is the product of service. If Khwaja Bahá'u'lláh Naqshband and his affiliates seem not to have accepted anyone's service, this is simply because of their preference for performing service themselves and practicing modest humility. It is essential to love the doer of good, and the strength of attachment corresponds to the measure of affection. Those committed to this path have sacrificed themselves to the benefit of their fellow creatures, and they are distinguished by the fact that they expect nothing in return. It is not in books that I discovered Sufism, but through serving my fellow creatures. Everyone has a road to follow, and mine has been the road of service. I try to be of service to everyone, of everyone I have high hopes. Yeah, and then the Russia hat turns to some of his remarks, commenting on some Quranic passages and some hadith. So we might briefly look at these just to indicate. Again, the tariqah is very focused on uh, a due, reverent, uh, contemplative attitude towards scripture, moving from the outward meaning into the living text beneath. Uh, and uh, some of the great uh, uh, esoteric tafsirs have come from this, uh, from this tradition. So, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, 01, verse 1. This is what he says. Praise, Hamd, has its inception and its consummation. Praise has its inception when the servant is thankful for the blessing bestowed upon him because he realizes that praise increases that blessing. 
As for the consummation of praise, it comes at the point where thankfulness is the expression of gratitude for strict fulfillment of the duty of servitude, which Allah has imposed upon his servant. Praise also reaches its consummation when the servant realizes that he is but the point of manifestation where Allah, the exalted, praises himself. As for the servant's perfection, it requires him to recognize his own non-existence and the true existence of Allah and to acknowledge that neither essence nor attributes nor actions belong to him at all. So this is the sort of ashari or maturidi understanding that everything is actually the consequence of the direct divine agency, which is not how we see things, but at a um, non-egotistic higher level of perception, we see that everything is through the divine agency. And then he comments on, وَقَلِيلٌ مِنْ عِبَادِيَ shakur Few of my servants are thankful. Thankfulness in reality is the servant's recognition in the blessing of the bestower of the blessing. According to the venerable Imam al-Ghazali, to savor and enjoy the blessing is not at odds with thankfulness. To enjoy the blessing is a means of access to the Lord of Truth. So despite their difficult beginnings, this is not necessarily an ascetical tradition. It's all about uh, uh, the attitude to uh, the things that one possesses. So we might have to fast forward. Ya ayyuha nasu antumul fuqara'u ila Allah. O mankind, you are the poor or the needy towards God. The human being is needy. Allah knows through his eternal knowledge that the human being, by virtue of his human condition, is in the state of needing water, bread, and other means of worldly subsistence. Whatever he needs, therefore, the reality of this need is nothing other than his dependence on God. To emphasize this point, one day the Venerable Khaja provided those present at his meeting with various warnings and admonitions. He said, you wander in the streets and stand there to no good purpose. You must at least try and do some useful work so that your fellow creatures may benefit by you. You must also make the effort required to attain the perception of oneness in multiplicity. This is Vahdet Dar Kasrat, seeing not just the outward manifestation of objects in creation, but seeing uh, the source and the unifying principle which underlies them and gives them sense. And then uh, some of his comments on hadiths. Uh, remember, this is a Naqshbandi lineage, Silsila, and therefore traces its, the reception of its spiritual fragrance back to Abu Bakr al-Siddiq. So uh, a text that he likes is uh, one of the last things that the Holy Prophet says when he's too sick to lead the prayer. Al-yawma tusaddu kullu furjatin illa furjadu Abi Bakr. Today, all the doors of the mosque are closed except the door of Abu Bakr, the one through which he comes, because he is to lead the prayer in the absence of the Prophet. And this idea of uh, Abu Bakr as a Siddiq, which is also related to friendship, truthfulness, being real with somebody. Sadiq is a friend, Siddiq is this uh, persistent, uh, holy uh, truthfulness that uh, this is inseparable from the principle of, of, of mahabba, or love. 
and much of this tradition is about the uh, relationship, uh, the tawajjo, between sheikh and disciple being a relationship of love. Uh, in perceiving the perfection, the nobility, the sacrifice of the sheikh, inevitably the murid loves the sheikh, and the sheikh automatically, through his love of everything which he sees as being manifestations of the divine plenitude in every moment, is full of love for, for creation, uh, despite the difficulty of his personal circumstances. So he, he links this to this saying towards the end of the seerah, close the doors of the mosque except Abu Bakr's door. And this is what he says. The mosque of the Prophet, Allah give him, uh, bless him and give him peace, has many doors. During the death sickness of Allah's messenger, when he was in his final moments, he gave orders for all the other doors to be closed and for the door belonging to the venerable Abu Bakr to be left open. The Khajigan, the masters of truth and reality, have had many things to say on this subject. For instance, the connection of destiny is superior to all other connections. So the day will come when the doors of all other connections are closed and the door of love's link will be left open. Apart from love and affection, there is no connection that leads to Allah and results in attainment of the goal. So it's the Holy Prophet's love for Abu Bakr, his thaniyath name. Remember when the two are hiding from the Quraysh together, make the hijrah together, that's, that's friendship, the love that existed between them, uh, is taken to be a characteristic of... Uh, almost seems to be end-time expectation. The day will come when the doors of all other connections are closed. So as the Ummah moves into times when things are harder and austerities become harder to practice, this principle of sort of magnetism, the jadb of love, is going to become more salient in people's spirituality. And you see this as the discourse of our spirituality moves through its literary history. The early period, it's quite ascetical, hell-fearing, uh, penitential, and then it moves through Rumi and Ibn Arabi to, to a discourse of love for God and love for creation, love for each other. Not because that's something different, it's just a different uh, emphasis because uh, uh, this is the, the, the process um, by which people can still relate to the truth. Since the venerable Abu Bakr, this is Safi here commenting, since the venerable Abu Bakr is the starting point of the way of the Khajigan, the masters of wisdom, love and affection constitute the distinctive feature and emblem of their connection. Uh, after explaining this point, Khawaja Ubaidullah went on to say, the whole endeavor is not to lose this connection. So this principle of uh, love is uh, really essential to the entire, uh, entire matter. And there's other very interesting things that pertain really to the specifics of adab in the, the Khanaqah, uh, the importance that everything in the spiritual space should be from halal origins. And even if somebody comes in uh, wearing something that has not been attain, obtained lawfully or on which there might be any impurity, then the spiritual atmosphere is dissipated. And he has a number of explanations of that. But time is moving on. Let's just uh, look at some of the other statements. Uh, here's a nice one. One day, when the venerable Bayezid Bistami, who is in the Silsila of the Khajigan, although he's much earlier, was passing by a certain place, a wet dog came out and shook itself. To keep the spattering drops of water from touching his clothes, 
the venerable Bayezid pulled his coattails together and stepped back. The dog acquired the faculty of speech, and it said, if a single drop from me had touched the hem of your garment, you could have washed it with a small amount of water and restored it to the state of purity. As for the dirt you have dropped into your inner being by folding your coattails and considering yourself pure and superior to me, where can you find enough water to purge that filth away? <laughs> It is necessary to lift the burden from one's fellow creatures, and this can only be done through lawful earning. On the path of the masters of wisdom, the hand, dust, is applied to making lawful profit, while the heart is always devoted directly to the beloved. Remember this principle that we, we noted of dil ba yar, dust ba kar, that the heart is with the beloved, the hand is with 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 the work, and we saw this in the, uh, the craftsmanship of uh, uh, Molana Abdullah Ross. Now, this is such a rich book, and there's so much here. Um, I think we've probably uh, got one of these uh, beads of dew quite uh, clear from the, the Einel Hayat uh, sprinklings. Molana uh, uh, Sofi is telling us, uh, and the Einel Hayat, the wellspring of life, is dhikr, it's haqiqah itself. It's everything that washes us from the contaminations of the ego. This is classic spirituality. The ego. Nafs, self, is a contamination that actually, despite all of its promises, obstructs our happiness. By transcending it, by drawing the dagger of Mujahida, as Imam Junaid says, trying to stab it recurrently in all of those moments where it's ego against service, recurrently we become habituated to something else and become different human beings and start to function as human beings are supposed to, as rememberers. In his early life as a small child, Khawaja Abaydullah Ahra just assumed, of course, everybody sees reality and remembers God. Um, the world is calling out with his name, and it was hard for him to understand that there'd be some people who are not in that condition. But it's the ego that gets in our way. So let's just close by reading um, just the story of his demise. We've only done about 5% of the book. Uh, according to the author of the Rashahat, who was there, Safi, when this poor creature obtained the honor for the second time uh, of encountering the venerable Khawaja, it was the 24th day of the month, Rabi al Akhir, in the year AH 893-1488. When I was in his company, he made his age known, saying, after three years and four months, my age will be 90. In the month of Muharram, he fell sick with the illness that would transport him to the realm of perpetuity. Since he survived until Rabi al-Awwal of that same year, it can be reckoned that he had reached the age of 89. On Wednesday, the 20th of Muharram, the Venerable Khaj left his place in Kafshir and set out on the road to the village of Kamangaran. Along the way, he alighted to spend the night in Qujanan. 
Then on the Thursday morning, he took the highway in the direction of Kamangaran. He was so weak that he could not pass beyond the town, so he spent that night there too. On the Friday morning, he again attempted to travel. He made frequent stops along the road and tried to catch some rest. On the Saturday night, at the time of the evening prayer, he finally reached Kamangaran, where he stayed for seven days, still able to stand in spite of his weakness. On the seventh day, a Friday, his infirmity became intense and he collapsed into bed. Though confined to his bed, he duly performed his ritual prayers for three months and he was guilty of no omission, despite the fact that he could not stand on his feet. The month of Rabi al-Awwal finally arrived. His illness had reached its ultimate stage. One evening, he asked, has the evening prayer, Maghrib, been announced? Yes, we replied, it has been announced. Only by nods and signs could he perform that day's evening prayer. Shortly after the prayer, he suddenly stopped breathing and attained to the mercy of the Lord of Truth. But there's more uh, information about the last hours of uh, Sheikh Ubaidullah Ahrar. So how do we uh, engage with this? Uh, somebody born and raised and disciplined in an age in which uh, there were great teachers and great uh, uh, possibilities for stepping outside tedious, dusty, um, soul-contaminating worldliness into a space where one could clearly see what our task is, which as the Naqshbandi masters say, is hosh dardam, uh, awareness with every breath. Nowadays, in a new agey way, we might say mindfulness, but this is the uh, Naqshbandi way, hosh dardam, attentiveness with every breath. In other words, at every moment, uh, be aware of the unique brilliance and divine irreplaceability of the dis disposition of creation in that second, even if you're just, uh, putting a splint on the paw of a dog in the street. Be aware of the irreplaceable uh, excellence and ihsan of that moment. Don't just space out and let it pass away because it is what it is. Uh, but also be aware of the possibilities for service. Uh, and service in this way takes priority over dhikr. Bandis do a lot of dhikr, mostly the silent dhikr, but Service is, is their way, uh, as we've seen eminently in the life of the great Khaja and the life of Al-Marhum Abdullah Ross. Uh, but through, not ego, but what they call Nazar Barqadam, Sheikh Abdullah in particular, followed this principle. Nazar Barqadam, the second of their principles, means to look at your feet, uh, to look down, not to kind of ostentatiously check your tie in front of the microphone and to look, sort of the Boris Johnson thing, look at me, it doesn't matter what I'm going to say, I've got no idea, but here I am, just ego, uh, in all of its, uh, at best, mediocrity. Uh, but, uh, no, the, the real one is not the one who's looking to the cameras, but the one who is looking down. So humility um, is, such an essential principle. Safar Darvatan, the journey to the homeland. We're all heading back to the Ma'ab, uh, back to the place of return, the Ma'ad. In our tradition in the Quran, often 
what is after death is referred to as the place of return. We speak of the ma'ad. So safar darvatan is a reality. We have to be aware that that's the journey that we're taking. Uh, you're on a plane to Dusseldorf or something, but much more certainly than that, you're on the journey to the next world. The plane can be diverted or there can be a catering strike or something and who knows. But the, this journey, the destination is one that you will definitely reach. And remembering that is uh, indispensable. Khalvat dar anjuman is another of their principles, the Khajagan. Solitude in the crowd. In other words, when with others, you don't have to step outside their company, but uh, do not be swept up by the kind of herd instinct of the crowd, by the kind of uh, endorphin-inducing mass emotion or thoughtlessness of a party culture or a football-supporting culture, whatever else it might be. Be alone in that crowd, huh? because uh, not because of your awareness of superiority, but because of your awareness that you have important things to do at that time. So that's Khalwat Dar Anjuman. And the other uh, of ones of the, the eight principles uh, that we need to recall and reflect on how they are articulated in the lives of people like Khawaja Ubaidullah. Yad Kard, remember, just means dhikr, uh, make the remembrance. Whatever the circumstance, even if it seems to be khidmat rather than you doing your wazifa or your khatam, remembrance. Khidmat is not an alternative to remembering God, it is an opportunity uh, to remember him. That's important for those who are in modern high-pressure careers, I think, where they think, I don't really have time for God at work because so much in my intray. You have to to, uh, think carefully about your daily life and figure out how you can use its features, its rhythms, uh, as uh, a means for service and as a means for service, also as a means for uh, remembrance. Even if the service is just so you can put food on your family's table at the end of the day, that also is a noble service and should not be underestimated, but try and find ways of sanctifying even the profane things that you do. Baz Garad, restraining your thoughts, be conscious of the jumping of the monkey thoughts and the random stream of consciousness in the head, which never takes you anywhere particularly helpful. Uh, Only disciplined thinking is going to improve you and improve your life. So that inward restraint is important, which takes them on to what they call nigah dasht, which is developing techniques for scrutinizing uh, the flow of consciousness, consciousness in your mind so that you are making use of every moment. This khoshtar dam, how can you be attentive in every, every breath? Uh, only through some kind of inward discipline, not through spacing out. Uh, the strange things that the brain does when watching television and the kind of consciousness is who knows where. One is comatose or almost dead. No, what is required is to be aware of the tendency of the thoughts to stray, which is one of the advantages of religious duty. You know, if you are used to disciplining your thoughts during your five daily namaz prayers, that is going to be a helpful exercise that will assist you in being a disciplined person at other times as well, because it's the same kind of muscular aspect of the brain and your consciousness that's being developed. Get into the habit of resisting wool gathering, spacing out, uh, and uh, you will find everything else comes more easily for you in your life. And then yad dasht, 
concentrate on God. The vicar is not just subhanAllah, subhanAllah, and certain qualities, but focus on the divine reality as al-qarib, the near, the only true reality. Everything else is just kind of contingently or provisionally real, but the absolute uh, haq is the Lord, tabaraka wa ta'ala, uh, and engrave that upon the heart, which is really the meaning of naqshband. Uh, the divine name is, ingrained, is engraved upon the heart. Be aware of that. What does the heart say? The moment the fetus's heart starts to beat, which is said to be the time of the insolment of the spirit, Allah, Allah, Allah. Most of the time we're not listening. Allah is patient with us. Uh, but to focus on that, to realize that the divine name is inscribed upon our hearts, Naqshband, uh, will uh, enable us to open our eyes and start to become living human beings rather than just uh, uh, consumers on autopilot until we end up you know, uh, drugged in some retirement home. Uh, may Allah save us all from that prospect and make us people who benefit from the richness and the irreplaceability and the, the giftedness of every moment, inshallah, with his help, because without his help we can do nothing at all. Barakallahu fikum wa lafuminkum. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Cambridge Muslim College training the next generation of Muslim thinkers.